What's going on, everybody? I'm your host, Andrew Newer, founder of Let's Talk Minnesota Sports. That's the sweet sound of a mud puppy porter from Central Waters Brewing Co. Let me know what you're drinking in the comment section below. We have a lot to discuss, so let's talk some Minnesota sports. All right, guys, how about your Minnesota Timberwolves? Whew, what a win. That was the most electric I've seen Target Center. I'm only 23, so I don't remember the KG days, but how awesome was it when Edwards and Beverly both jumped on the scorer's table? Now that's a way to pay homage to the greatest Wolf in team history. Like I've been saying all these years, Minnesota is a basketball state. Yes, hockey is kind of in the forefront, but at the end of the day, I do think that Minnesota is right there with them. And I mean, look at all the basketball talent that's come out of Minnesota. All right, so it's kind of, I'm, I'm going to be going over, I'll talk about it a little bit, but I will be going over the Grizzlies series in a pod coming up. But I wanted, I did want to talk about the Clippers series. I tweeted about this last night, but Towns struggling against the Clippers is not indicative of who he is as a player. The Clippers did everything to stop him because he's our most dominant player. And once he was out of the game, they had no answer. I mean, that's why Nas Reed had a team high plus 17. You know, when Cat was in the game, it was double teams, triple teams, and there was no spacing. Anytime he wanted to drive, they were there. It was an f- offensive foul on Cat. Anytime he tried to shoot, it didn't go because when Cat was getting the ball, he just wanted to shoot the ball right away because it was his only open look. And usually that was a two, three foot behind the three point line, three point shot, which for him, it's efficient, I guess, but it's not ideal. You know, you want him being spot up on the three, taking those catch and shoots or driving to the hoop, which he's been doing really well. Obviously, I do think that's going to come back a little bit when the Timberwolves do play the Grizzlies. But as we've seen in the past with those last four games against, I guess, last five now, those last five games, Ty Lue and the Clippers defense has just swarmed Cat, and he's he's honestly never had an answer to it. Can we take a minute, though, to talk about the TNT crew? It blows my mind how stupid they are. For no reason, Charles Barkley hates Minnesota. I mean, you can tell he has no idea that this Timberwolves team is good. Even after the win, he was ripping them and saying how he doesn't understand how anyone else has the green light except for Ant, D'Lo, and Cat. Well, Barkley, I mean, if you watched the freaking game, you would know that having Beasley shoot, having McDaniel shoot, having Prince shoot, all three, even the whole bench, Nas Reed even, all those guys are a core reason this team team has done so well. Because they have the green light, because they can shoot, it's essentially helped the Timberwolves have one of the better benches in the basketball. I mean, if it's obvious if you would have just watched it. I mean, he was even ripping Carl Anthony Towns for shooting too many threes. But newsflash, if you watched him that last half of the season after the All-Star break or so, he's driving to the rim. But, I mean... Can't really expect much from him. He's not really good broadcaster, commentator. I did want to talk about, though, did this game highlight how good Ant will be at 25? And the answer is 100%. Ant is only 20 years old, and that was the biggest game of his career. In that game, he dropped 30 points, 
and to go along with it, he had five rebounds and two assists. He also shot 10 of 21 from the field, and he went 5 of 11 from three. Plus, I mean, this experience will only make him better. I mean, if you look at like the progressive scale of Devin Booker or even John Morant, because they had this experience, those players are allowed to go into the next season knowing what it takes to win, knowing what it takes to get to the playoffs, finishing games even. I mean, last I mean, we know that when Ant is in those high en- energy environments that he's going to perform. Watching that game, I personally I saw a lot of Dwayne Wade in him. Now, I'm not saying that he is Dwayne Wade, but I think you could see flashes of who he was as a player. You know, back when he was at Marquette and he was entering the league, Dwayne Wade had his imprint on the Miami Heat at such an early age. We saw it at 21, 22 years old. I mean, yeah, Ant's defense is not at that level. Offensively, though, if he can stay engaged, if he can keep driving to the hoop, make those open shots, I mean, he's going to be a weapon in the playoffs. As he, I mean, he already is a weapon, but you know what I'm talking about. When, he, when he's going, it's impossible for other teams to stop. As I said before, though, I will be dropping a separate pod coming in the next like day or two. I just wanted to get an, another day or, or so of kind of watching some film, kind of researching the opponent, kind of diving in a little bit deeper to this Grizzlies-Timberwolves thing. For now, I just I just wanted to go over that Clippers game. But can we, can we admit, though, that that game was rigged? It was pretty obvious, especially when Marcus Morris got that second technical. The refs look it over, and they're like, you know what? No. He, he's not getting technical. He can't get ejected. We need a Los Angeles team to win, not Minnesota. All right, I'm going to get keep getting annoyed. So let's just move on to the Minnesota Twins. The Minnesota Twins are 2-4 and four starting the season. As much as I was very annoyed at today's game, part of it, yes, I was very cold. But let's not get too carried away and start freaking out. Yes, they did lose both games to the Dodgers. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, if you look at it, the Dodgers are probably the favorites to win the World Series. So it's really, I mean, it's losing both games that detrimental to the season. Did we really go into that game even before the season started? Did we go into this thinking, Minnesota, you can lock those in as two wins? More than likely, we could have looked at that and said, you know what, that's probably going to be two L's. Where it gets kind of tricky, though, is you would have liked Minnesota to beat the Mariners probably 3-1. I mean, it's kind of hard to expect to go 4-0 against them. They're not that same team we've seen in the past. This is a team who has a lot of talent. I mean, just look at what they did last year. We, I mean, no one expected that as much as... No one expected them to perform at such a level. I mean, they were right there in the thick of it. And what makes this so tough is it was a home series... The Mariners are going to be a team that's going to be competing with Minnesota late in the season. I mean, you can probably look at it and say, you know what, Minnesota, Seattle, and probably another team or two will be in the thick of the wildcard race. Splitting that series 2-2 at home is not a good thing. You know, you'd like to get that edge on them because, you know, when you go to Seattle, 
maybe you're not splitting 2-2. Maybe at that point of the season, you're not as good. Maybe you're falling off. Maybe players are injured. Maybe there's COVID. All those things factor in, and maybe you don't split that series. Maybe you go 1-2, and two and Seattle owns a tiebreaker, and maybe that comes down to that wild card spot later on. So, But Minnesota will be facing Boston, Kansas City, and the Chicago White Sox over the next three series. If you're really looking at it, you want to go 500. That's that's looking at it to not be too aggressive in the whole predicting. You know, obviously you want to be optimistic about your home team, but more than likely that's a 500 play. You know, you got Boston, Kansas City, who's better, but they're not they're not that they're not at that level yet. And then obviously the White Sox, who I think is the second, third best team in the league behind obviously the Dodgers. So if you're looking at it, you're hoping that you maybe pick up the Boston game will be a four game series. Kansas City will be three and Chicago will be three. So, I mean, that's 10 games. You're hoping to go five and five over that stretch. Right after that, you have Detroit, who is. I think Detroit will be a sneaky team this year. They have a lot of talent. They have two guys coming up from a system. They're going to be pretty good in a year or two. They'll probably be competing with the White Sox for that division title if Minnesota doesn't make any more moves. Then you got Tampa Bay, who is my favorite out of the AL to make the World Series. After that, it does get a little easier, though. You're talking about Baltimore and Oakland to start the first two weeks of May. That's a tough stretch, though, to start the season, and you're already two and four. If you go five and five over that stretch, then you're going seven and nine. Yeah, quick math, quick math. Seven and nine. That's not great, though. And a lot of it does come down to if their hitters will hit. Especially if you're looking at Miguel Sano. 19 at-bats, zero hits, nine strikeouts. I mean, come on. You'd be better off putting any other player out there to hit. Because he doesn't put the ball in play. And that's such a vital, such a vital part of the game. If you looked at, if you watched the game uh, against the Dodgers, that first game where it was raining, Luis Arise made a, a solid not really solid. He made it just a regular routine double play ball. However, Trey Turner fell over, stumbled, threw the ball over. I forget who was playing second, but he threw it over the guy's head, which caused, I'm going to butcher this, but I want to say it was Max Kepler. Don't quote me on that though. But the point is the Twins scored a run and tied the game at 1-1. All because Luis Arias put the ball in play, which he routinely does. Putting the ball in play is such an important factor because anything can happen. A guy can miss the ball. A guy could, you know, you can you can cause errors, especially if Buxton's on the on the on the base pass. That guy's speed will cause errors. If Miguel Sano's going up there at 19 at bats and he's striking out nine of them, it's just not valuable. I'll give him 50 more at bats or so, maybe 20 if I'm going to be really honest. And I'm pretty over this experience. Today when I was at the game, cold, and he slammed his bat on the ground in frustration. It was literally all of us getting out our frustration on him as well. I mean, it's at some point, this experience has to be done. It is early though, but the starting rotation looks pretty good. I mean, obviously Joe Ryan didn't have the best start on opening day. 
Sonny Gray looked pretty decent. And obviously then you have the other kind of three wild cards in there is Dylan Bundy, Chris Archer, and Chris Paddock. Dylan Bundy in that first game won five innings, gave up one hit, zero earned runs, one walk, and two strikeouts. Then you look at Chris Archer, who is, if you looked at a tweet I did right before the season started, I said he's going to be the surprise player of this season. He's a guy who I've talked about before. He battled injuries the last two seasons. But when healthy, you're talking about a guy who's a former all-star, a guy who knows how to play. Chris Archer in the last in that last game, he won four innings, two hits, zero runs, and three strikeouts. The biggest thing for me is, yes, he was injured those last two seasons, but his velocity was up from last season. His four-seam averaged 93.2 miles per hour, which is a lot better compared to his last season of 92.0. Sure, it was only a game, and maybe after five, six, seven appearances, that's going to drop a little bit. But to average 93.2, you're talking about a mile difference, a mile per hour difference, which is actually pretty drastic if you look at it in the grand scheme of things. That doesn't mean he's pitching 93 every time. Some of those he could be pushing 94, 95, maybe 91 on some. You know, it just varies. But at the end of the day, that's averaging 93.2, but it's up 1.2. Let's try to be positive on Chris Paddock. That was not the best first start he could have had. Watching him today, obviously I couldn't see if some things were miscalled on strikes or balls, but four innings pitch, six hits, three earned runs, three strikeouts, and one air. I mean, that first inning was long. And when he fell over trying to field it, I mean, you just had to feel it for the guy. I mean... If they can get consistent play from all six guys out of the rotation, and yes, I, I am putting Paddock in that realm of players. I do think that that last start was a fluke. But if all six of those guys can play at a good to average, I mean, you're not you're not going to expect your fifth, fifth guy or sixth guy to go out there and pitch as your number one. But if you can get consistent play, I think you have to be a lot, you have to feel a lot better about this Twins pitching staff. I mean, in recent years past, you can look at the Twins and be like, yeah, their bats usually usually aren't really coming around when the weather's kind of cold. I mean, you have the 2019 season, but that was around like that late April, May, where they kind of went on that run. But the bats usually start warming up when the weather does. We saw that in spring training as well. As that last week or so, the Twins were hitting like crazy. So you'd like to think that that's going to carry on once it gets to May. Once it gets in June, once it gets July, once it gets hot, gets humid, and hopefully some more fans come out because I cannot stand, cannot stand Dodger fans. Holy crap. All right, lastly, let's go over some NFL draft stuff. Last week I talked about the cornerback situation. If you'd like to hear that, you can go back and look and, and listen to my last pod. But today I want to go over the offensive line class. I did throw in one center because I think under cer- certain circumstances, certain circumstances, Minnesota should maybe either trade up a pick or two to get them or look at their options because I'll go over it in a bit, but Gary Bradbury might not be the answer at center. So offensive tackle class is elite. And you can see maybe three, four, maybe five guys get selected in the top 10. But, I mean, realistically, you're looking at three or four guys who are going top 10. I mean, it's a really 
a really good class. However, the offensive guard situation in the NFL draft this year is not as good at the top. Center position, you have Tyler Linderbaum. He's, I'll get to him in a second, but he is my offensive line crush. Minnesota has their tackle set with Christian Dersaw and Brian O'Neill. Is Dersaw the answer? I'm not sure. It's early, but I think because you didn't give him the option really until late in the season and it was under Zimmer, I think you have to keep giving him the keys to keep going. I mean, it was too early and you drafted him in the first round. I like him still. I think you have to keep rolling with that. Brian O'Neill is a stud. Nothing needs to change with that. Maybe you want to move him to left tackle and Darius over to right, but I don't really think that's a smart idea. You don't want to mess up anything there, especially I'd have to do a little more digging if Darius ever did play right tackle in college. But as for now, Darius is a left tackle, and I don't, I don't even want to think about the idea of moving him to right tackle. I don't think that's a smart idea. As I said before, the offensive guard class is weaker. So if you're Minnesota, if you're Minnesota, and I mean Rick Spielman's not in the front office, but I think you should consider trading down. The top two players at the dra- at the guard position is Zion Johnson and Kenyon Green. Both players who are projected probably to go late first, second round probably. Late first, second round. No, I would be shocked if one of those guys goes in the top 10 or top 15, For if we're being honest. As I did last week with the cornerbacks, I kind of want to just do a little quick rapid fire on some of the pros and cons of each player. For Zion Johnson, he finished with a 87.6 overall grade in a pinch start at Virginia. Sorry, Zion Johnson, his pro, in one game, he played left tackle. He finished with an 87.6 overall grade. Probably should do a little proofreading next time on my notes, but you get the point. 87.6 in a one pinch start at left tackle, which, I mean, if Christian Derrissaw is not the answer, maybe you want to look in something there. Johnson did improve his draft stock drastically. Uh, as the season went on, he was kind of a late bloomer. One thing I do really like about him is he has good size. He's 6'3", 312. He's, if you draft him in the first round, second round, I think you can pencil him in as a starter. He's got that kind of talent where he's sort of a sh- for sure thing. I'm not, I mean, you can, you have those offensive line that you draft, maybe like, I mean, Wyatt Davis was a third round pick, but I do like him as a prospect going into things. Christian Derrissaw, obviously I thought he should be starting, but he had the injuries, so that makes sense. But Zion Johnson should be a starter day one if the Minnesota Vikings drafted him. Some other things that he does well is he gets to his spots. That's important for a young guy. You don't get to your spots early on. Blocks are not going to be hit. Dalvin Cook's going to get hit. Kirk Cousins is not going to get hit. Or Kirk Cousins will get hit. Sorry. Zion Johnson is better at the pass is better in pass blocking situations. And I do think that playing left tackle sort of helped them with that. I mean, Minnesota in the past at least has liked to run the ball a lot, but you get the point. Pass blocking is good. Kirk Cousins needs more time. I mean, we saw him last year in a couple of those games where he was getting pressured like crazy. He had no time to throw the ball. Just kind of threw a couple quick passes over to Justin Jefferson, which usually works, but you want to give him more time. Yes, he's durable, but you're paying him all that money. You might as well protect him. Last season, he only gave up, Zion Johnson only gave up six pressures. 
So, I mean, you put that into the Vikings line. Yes, you're going up against some NFL talent. Maybe that goes up a tick or two, but you're talking about a guy who's going to be giving up less than 10 pressures probably each season. Some cons on him, though, like nothing will jump out at you if you watch him or like investigate some of it, the analysis on him. He's just a guy who is pretty well-rounded, but he's not like elite elite at everything he does. There's just nothing he does poorly, nothing that he does that's incredible. He's a he's just a guy that you want to put in on, put in on day one. He's going to do what you want him to do, get you – he's going to protect. Kind of rambled there, but he's going to protect, and that's the main thing. You're getting a starter. In 2019, his PFF grade was 71.4, which was 50th out of 445. In 2020, his PFF grade was 70.1, which ranked 72nd out of 460. In 2021, here kind of comes that late bloomer, especially kind of later in the season. His grade went from 80, he went to 84.4, which ranked 13th out of 622. And as I did last week, here's a direct quote from PFF. Johnson started his career at Davidson before transferring and starting the last three years at guard for Boston College. His physicality took a noticeable leap in 2021 and he allowed only six pressures. If I'm Minnesota, yeah, I'd like him, but I wouldn't draft him until second round or at the very best late, late first round. Now let's get to Kenyon Green, who is my second player of the three players I'm going to be talking about. But one reason that I really like Kenyon Green is his size and versatility. Kenyon Green, some of the pros. His size, 6'4", 323 pounds. And he's not 6'4", 323, slow moving. You're getting a guy who's who's very strong, explosive, smart. He's a great run blocker. Can you imagine 6'4", 323, blocking down the line. You have Dalvin Cook going behind him. That's going to be incredible. One other thing from Kenyon Green is he gives you 100% effort. Which we'll, I'll get to in a second here, but that kind of leads into a con. But his second level blocking is what kind of gets me excited. With Dalvin Cook, if you watch Kenyon Green highlights, you'll see as soon as he gets to that second level, Kenyon Green is getting out there. He's blocking. He's going down field. Dalvin Cook, once he gets into open space, you know he's going to need more blockers. Well, I guess maybe not. He does break a lot of tackles, but you want to protect him. He's kind of a little fragile. Some cons about him, though. His draft stock did fall, but that benefits Minnesota by trading down a little bit. Maybe you can gain an asset or two. Uh, Mechanics, they're not always correct, which... It's that's not what you want to hear if you're getting if you're getting a guy first round. But I'd like to think that Minnesota could maybe teach him a couple things. But that does fall into some of the mistakes of he does do a lot of ducking, he does do a lot of hugging, which kind of results in a lot of penalties. He created seven penalties in the first eight games, and as I said before, when he gets aggressive, he gets off the line of scrimmage too hard, and sometimes that backfires on him. I did miss on a quick point on one of the pros section. And I think this is probably, as I said before, along with his size, I think this is like the biggest thing when it comes to Kenyon Green. You're getting a guy who's very versatile. He played every single position except center. Maybe there's a couple injuries, which usually happens with offensive linemen. Maybe you throw him at left tackle for a game. Maybe you throw him at right tackle. Maybe right guard. 
you the options are limitless with Kenyon Green, and you're just getting a you're getting a you're getting a really special talent. That's the word I'm trying to think of. He's a special talent, and Minnesota be lucky to get him. 2019 PFF grade was 62.4. He finished 209th out of 445. In 2020, he finished with a 75 PFF grade, which finished 41st out of 446. In 2021, it went up a little bit, not like kind of what we saw in Zion Johnson, but you're getting a guy who finished with a PFF grade of 79.8, which was 24th out of 622. Direct quote from PFF, Green will not only be coveted for his absurd movement skills for a 325-pounder, but also because he started at every single offensive line position except center in 2021. He can get the job done at either tackle or guard. You know, Minnesota kind of has a lot of moving parts, but you like to think that if things go south, that he can kind of step in and go anywhere. All right, let's talk about Tyler Linderbaum. He is by far my favorite prospect, and he might not be there for Minnesota at number 12. I think if you're Minnesota, maybe he falls if you're getting lucky, but realistically, you might have to move up a couple spots to get him, which might cost the Vikings too much, but I think it's worth it. In my opinion, I think he's going to be a Hall of Famer. Again, this is my opinion, but I'm very high on this guy. When you're thinking about Tyler Linnebaum, you have to start thinking about Quentin Nelson. He's that type of talent. He's arguably the best center to come out of college in the last 10, 12 years. I mean, imagine Minnesota plugging that guy in at center. We've seen how bad things can get with Bradbury under center. I mean, we had to put Mason Cole in. I mean, Mason Cole did step in and do good things, but he's not not elite. And Garrett Bradbury's not elite either. I I like Garrett Bradbury as a person. I think he's cool, but... It's not the it's not the answer. Another pro may not be anything, but he's an Iowa lineman, and usually those Iowa Wisconsin kind of guys they usually pan out, in my opinion. Uh, Larry Baum was the best center in the NCAA over the last two years. I know I said the last ten years might be the best prospect, but statistically speaking and PFF grade wise, he is the best center of the last two years. One thing that he does really well is he's very athletic which kind of ties into his size, which can be a con, and I'll get to that in a second. But he's very he's very athletic. When you're watching the film, he loves to get out, he loves to go downfield, and he loves blocking on those runs. He's extremely explosive and extremely balanced, and he only gave up three pressures in 2020. For Dalvin Cook, like I said before, you get if Dalvin Cook's running, Linderbaum is the perfect option to put in front of him. As I said before, though, because he's so explosive, so athletic, so balanced, his size is only 6'2 and 296 pounds, which if you're looking up Garrett Bradbury, that is technically smaller than him, but I don't think Bradbury is at that size anymore. The poten- I mean, if he gets bigger, maybe Minnesota tells him, hey, you need to add some more muscle, get kind of bulked up. But the risk reward there, you know, you, he might be losing those athletic abilities. But, I mean, if you're looking at the other way around, he's not going to get pushed around so much, which, as a center, you want a center that's kind of big, strong, and he can hold his own at at that position. With Litterbaum, though, you would like to see him use his hands a little better, and there are some schemes fits with him. 
if it's not up to his play style, it might it might kind of backfire. At Iowa, they kind of tooled it so that he would fit his own kind of run pass blocking thing. But I mean, obviously it panned out because as I'll go over here in a second here, the PF PFF grades were incredible. When I looked at him, I was surprised. I did not. He's just playing at an elite level that you won't see probably again in the next five, seven, eight years. In 2019, he finished with a PFF grade of 81.7, which was fifth in 20 out of 213. Fifth as a freshman. Going into sophomore year, 2020, 91.5. First out of 216. And in 2021, if you didn't think it could go any better, well, I got news for you. It can. That grade went up to 95.4, which was once again first in NCAA at a 300 at his position. Direct quote from PFF. Uh, direct quote from PFF. He's the best center prospect we've seen in PFF college era. He was already the highest grade, graded center in the country in 2020, but he took his game to a new heights in 2021, earning a 95.4 overall grade. All right. Well, since I didn't realize that anchor. Only goes 30 minutes. I will kind of kick back into things here. So obviously you might see that the sound is a little different. But Minnesota, please, 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 please draft Tyler Linderbaum. Especially because you don't know what the situation is like at center. I don't know if you guys saw it or anything, but go check out Kyle Rudolph's recent Instagram picture. It was a photo of him, Brian O'Neill, and Garrett Bradbury at the Timberwolves game. as And Bradbury was in the middle. And he looks a lot smaller than what we've seen him play in the past. I mean, granted, Bradbury was kind of always slimmer. He was, but he was always, he was athletic. He's a guy who's kind of in that realm of Linderbaum where he gets downfield. He's that mobile type of center that you've seen in the past. So maybe that's not the answer as we've seen in the past, but I like to think that Linderbaum isn't Garrett Bradbury. And I mean, Shouldn't be that hard to beat, but like not to bag on the guy. He, I have, I've always really liked Garrett Bradbury. I think he's, he's always someone that you want to root for. But if we're talking about football, he he's just a lot skinnier, and I'm 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 a little concerned about that. I don't think that they'll move him to tight end. He has played obviously tight end in the past, but I don't think that that's the right move. Right now he is listed at 300 pounds, but. If you look at the photo, he's very clearly not. Football aside, though, I did want to make a point that he looks very healthy and in good shape. And I'm, we're not trying to obviously weight shame or anything like that. He looks very well, and I wish him nothing but great health. But in football terms, that's not what you want to see if you're talking about a starting center. When Dalvin Cook's going to get hit pretty well, Kirk Cousins is going to hit, get hit pretty well, too. He just doesn't look ready, and Minnesota should look at maybe looking at Linderbaum. He's a guy, as I said before, he could be that next Quentin Nelson. He could be that he could be that next wave of Pro Bowl centers in the NFL. Of the three guys, I like Linderbaum the most, as you could tell. I kind of have a big crush on him, as I did say. Then I do like Kenyon Green because of his versatility. I think with the offensive injuries that you can see, throwing him anywhere on the offensive line is going to be very very important. And lastly, Zion Johnson. I mean, I wouldn't hate it if they thought that they could get him in the second round, maybe move up or so, but I mean, you that's like they're all three good players and I think they'll all be solid 
they all have their pros and cons, but of the three, it's Linderbaum, Green, and Johnson. All right, guys, that wraps up our third episode. Thank you all for listening, and be sure to keep your eyes peeled for a special Timberwolves pod previewing that Grizzlies series. But until next time, cheers. Thank you.